This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. From the Commonwealth Club of California, this is Climate One, changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Greg Dalton, and on the show today, we're going to explore the Colorado River. Every year, 40 million Americans take more water out of the Colorado than nature puts into it. Although this is a very wet year, the river is in pretty bad shape after 17 years of drought. Many Californians don't realize that a third of the state's freshwater comes from the Colorado River, which irrigates crops in the Imperial Valley and runs car washes in Los Angeles. Over the next hour, we'll check in on the Colorado and learn how it's connected to the California state water system, including the troubled Oroville Dam near Chico. Joining our live audience at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco, we're pleased to have with us three experts. Kevin Kelly is general manager of the Imperial Irrigation District, which uses about 20% of all the water flowing down the Colorado River. The desert area in Southern California is home to a billion-dollar agricultural economy that sends a lot of products to our kitchen tables. Abram Lusgartner is a reporter with ProPublica. He has written extensively about water in the American West and hosted the Discovery Channel documentary, Killing the Colorado. We'll hear some voices from that film to animate our discussion today. Fran Spivey Weber is vice chair of the California State Water Resources Control Board, the main state agency for water in California, and previously worked for the National Audubon Society and the Model Lake Committee. Please welcome them to Climate One. I'd like to begin. There's long been tension between folks who believe California, particularly farmers in the Imperial Valley, need to conserve more and share more water. One of our producers spoke to Dave White at the Decision Center for a Desert City in Phoenix to try and give us a sense of where we are today and how California's water use is affecting states throughout the California Colorado River Basin. Let's hear from him. My name is Dave White. I'm professor at Arizona State University and director of the Decision Center for Desert City. Lake Mead uh, is approximately 40% of its storage capacity currently, um, sitting around 1,085 feet above sea level the last time I checked. It's essentially a coin flip whether the lake level will be below 1,075 feet uh, in August when the potential for a shortage declaration would occur. The winter precipitation has been a positive story. We're seeing uh, elevated snowpack in the Colorado Rockies, and that is certainly welcome news. On the flip side, uh, we are in the midst of a 16-year-long drought in the region. And so even in typical or median years for precipitation and inflow into the major Colorado River Basin reservoirs, there are greater allocations of water than the natural system can provide. California is allocated the largest share of water, 4.8 million acre feet. The entire Colorado River allocation to the state of California is protected under current law so that even under a shortage, California would lose 0% of its water allocation from the river. 
the agricultural users consume the largest share of the total water supply. And so the conversation about the Imperial Valley as well as the other irrigated agricultural areas in the, in the basin reflects questions that we need to have a more deliberate and more public and uh, more informed discussion about the best and highest uses of our water supplies in these regions. Uh, every sector, um, agriculture, urban, industrial, must make significant conservation gains in the coming decades. That's Dave White, professor at Arizona State University. Uh, Kevin Kelly, uh, he referenced a deal there where some states came together and I, they drew a line in the sand, so to speak, at, at what, a 1075 or something like that uh, for the level for Lake Mead. Tell us the story of that deal, why those states did that, and what would be the consequence of um, the cutbacks that might happen this summer? So those are the, the uh, 2007 interim guidelines and 1075, elevation 1075 is that first trigger in which the junior uh, rights holders uh, would take cuts. Um, so California is entitled to 4.4 million acre feet. Uh, IID does comprise about 70% of that. Um, but this notion of you know, the comparative value of, of, of water used to grow uh, flatland crops and, and water that uh, supports the production of, of silicone chips. Um, it's curious to me because I, I wonder who makes that call. Um, and, and who says that uh, uh, one is more valuable than the other? Certainly they can make a case that uh, uh, there's more economic uh, output from the, the uh, silicone production. But for those people that live in the area I represent, uh, that alfalfa that... Uh, goes to feed uh, cattle and, and, and produce uh, dairy products. Um, that's an important job, and, and, uh, and they'd be lost without it. Brent Spivey Weber, you're in a statewide position that, that is overseeing uh, regulation and distribution of water. How does the state make those value judgments, <laughs> as Kevin Kelly said, between crops and semiconductors? Well, we try to balance. So we try to not tilt in any particular direction. Uh, we uh, balance between agriculture, environment, uh, and one thing that was not mentioned uh, in the setup piece, and, uh, and also urban areas as well. And the, the balancing is kind of like it, you kind of know it when you see it, but it doesn't often have a, a, a precise number that goes with it. And, and so we've, um, we have to balance all over the state. And this is an area that uh, is getting our attention now. And actually for, usually it costs lots of money to do the balancing because, you know, if you take water away from someone in order for them to be whole, they usually have to build something or uh, operate things in a different way. Bron Lesgarten, uh, rivers and water is often talked about as bank accounts, uh, and clearly there's more water being taken out of the Colorado River than is goes back in, so eventually this bank account is going to run dry. Is it a matter of time, and when is that going to happen? 
Yeah, think of it more. The Colorado, you can think of it more as a loan. Uh, you know, so to back up w- a distance from that 2007 agreement, uh, and really the reason that I began reporting on this, uh, in 1922, Herbert Hoover, Secretary of Commerce, uh, facilitates an agreement between the seven states that share the Colorado River, and they estimate, based on the historical record, how much water they think flows down that river. Uh, they come up with this number, 18 million acre feet. I mean, just focus on the 18 uh, part of that number. And what we've seen over the historical average, and not just the 17 years of drought, but since 1922 to now, is that the, the river has flowed at somewhere around a little over 13 million acre feet. Over the last 17 years of drought, it's flowed at about 12.5 million acre feet. When we talk about the share that each of these states get, uh, California, uh, Nevada, Arizona, Colorado, Wyoming, Utah, they, um, they're dividing from that hole still 90 years later or whatever we are. And they've never adjusted that amount to be sustainable with the amount of water that actually flows into the river. So the 2007 agreement that we were talking about a moment ago was one stab, a, a very modest agreement to say, well, if you know, things really get out of control, if we really do you know, overuse this resource to a point that's not sustainable, we'll each, here's the order in which we'll each take a little bit of a hit even with that hit, it doesn't bring it below the amount of water that's actually flowing in the river. So, Kevin Kelly, it sounds like we're living on some shaky ground here with the amount of water. There's more water on paper than actually in the river. And introduce climate change. Uh, it just seems like there's some real tough times ahead when this lake continues to drop and things get dicey. Is that fair? Well, it is fair. Um, uh, and what Abram is talking about is this this uh, notion of a, a structural deficit, but those seven uh, basin states, upper and and lower basins, have a history of of uh, anticipating changes like this, even a, a marked one like uh, climate, and uh, and and we're engaged right now in a drought contingency plan that, uh, despite the the welcome snowpack. Not just in California, but in the in the Colorado River watershed, uh, you got to make up for about 17 years of uh, pronounced uh, sustained drought. And I, my uh, expectation is that those seven states will do that. And no uh, single water user has uh, more of a a stake in that Colorado River uh, delivery system uh, than does IID. And, and no uh, single agency can have more of an impact at Lake Mead uh, than IID. And are you preparing? First of all, do you accept that, that uh, climate change is, is happening and affecting weather patterns? Um, I don't think there's, uh, there's any question about it. Uh, certainly in, in the part of the state uh, where we live, uh, the summers are inordinately hot already. And I'm told that uh, we can expect them to that the rest of the state and the, the West will follow suit. Um, uh, I find something a little comforting in that, that uh, <laughs> we'll all be in it together. But, uh, <laughs> but I, uh, what, I, what I wanted to say on, on this is that uh, it's in all these states' interest to uh, uh, plan ahead for, if not a structural deficit, uh, at least propping up that uh, lake level, so that uh, places like mine that uh, rely exclusively on Colorado River uh, won't be uh, high and dry. 
So this deal that you referenced in 2007 where the states got together and said, okay, if it gets, if Lake Mead gets down to this level, then these, act, these cutbacks have to happen. Was that anticipated to be invoked as early as 2017, or they think that was further out in the future, Franz Bybee? They thought it was further out in the future, uh, at least according to the, some of the folks that were in, engaged in this. It, but they had no way of knowing, just like we, don't, we have no way of knowing exactly what the uh, effect of, of climate change is going to be on us right now this year. So, Kevin Kelly, this is getting drier, more dire, faster than these prudent states you described expected. It, it clearly is. And, and uh, uh, I think the, the, the most important thing right now about for people to know about the Imperial Irrigation District is that for almost 15 years, um, we've been engaged in the nation's largest agricultural to urban water transfer. Tell us the story of that 2003 deal, how that came together. And you kind of had a gun to your head by the federal government, but tell us how that came together. So California uh, had been uh, exceeding its, its entitlement for a number of years, Southern California, and not our agency. <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, there was great pressure. Uh, and most of the, a lot of the impetus was from the federal government at the time uh, to get a water sharing agreement uh, among the parties and to settle, uh, you know, disputes. <coughs> and, and what they did was they called it a quantification settlement agreement, and it authorized what became these water transfers that will ultimately transfer up to half a million acre feet of water from our valley, from our farms and fields, uh, to urban Southern California. So the farm save water, San Diego benefits. Brom Lesgarten, is this a model deal for kind of moving water around parts of an increasingly dry state? Yeah, I think it is, actually. I mean, I think it's um, uh, inevitably the type of thing we're going to see in the future. And there, uh, to back up a moment, I mean, there's an unbelievable amount of inefficiency in the way water is used throughout the system. So that ranges from um, using irrigation ditches that aren't lined and lose half their water before they get to a, to a farm field in Colorado uh, to the fact that somewhere between 10 and 20 percent of the entire river's flow evaporates off the surface of these reservoirs and canals and this massive plumbing system we've built. And every single one of those are opportunities to... Uh, to use technology or use investment to recoup some of that water. So to make the same amount of water go a lot further. And that's what this settlement agreement did, was you basically had the cities of you know San Diego, Los Angeles, and that broader community pay for some of those upgrades, lined the All-American Canal to reduce some of that seepage into the ground. And in exchange, they got a share of the savings and a little bit more. And it's much more complicated than that. But that's the basic premise. And I think you're going to start to see a lot more of that. Um, you're starting to see deals where... The Southern California metropolitan area is paying farmers uh, north of, of IID, but in the, in the Blythe area of California, uh, to fallow fields in especially dry years. Not all the time, not every farm, not every farmer, uh, but an exchange of money in exchange for a change in behavior. And that behavior saves some water, and then you have the opportunity to redistribute that water. Um, and those sorts of trade-offs, I think, are um, part of an increased efficiency that has to happen, that will ultimately happen. And Franz Bobby Weber, efficiency in a warmer world, there's more evaporation. We've built this great state on a system moving around water that, as Abram just said, uh, evaporates and leaks all over the place. 
what can be done? Is the state doing enough to increase efficiency in this warming world where a lot of water is leaking and evaporating? Well, the state may not be doing enough, and I'll be the first to to say that, but the state is asked to do many, many, many things, and often it's very easy for, uh, in in fact, uh, in the quantification settlement agreement, um, the the state agreed... That's the 2003 deal with San Diego. 2003 Mm -hmm. deal. The state uh, agreed at the time that it would uh, put up uh, $9 billion, a lot of money, and it was really more money than the state was truly willing to do, at least if we judge by the last um, nine years of, of, the, uh, of the agreement. And so one lesson learned from this agreement, it, it, it definitely is, is, I think it will be a, a model for the future, but we shouldn't ask an, an entity that has a, a legislature, that has a governor, that sets up a budget every few years to do something so out, so out of proportion to what they do anywhere else. And the devil is in the details. We should work out as many of those details at the, at the beginning as we can possibly do. So Brad Lesgart in 2003, we all remember, we actually had a governor who got tossed out that year. Uh, $9 billion, was, did politicians sell a deal that they didn't intend to, uh, to fund? What happened? So I'm actually not familiar with the intimate details of the, how politically it was going down at the time. Uh, I know it was uh, a, a hard-fought agreement from all sides. I mean, it was, um, you had... Uh, you know, you had IID, you had the cities, you had the state of California, you had the other states uh, with, a, with a side interest, um, all really at loggerheads over this agreement. And you had the federal government stepping in and saying, you're going to figure out, you're going to sign, whatever it is you're going to sign, you're going to sign it by this date, or we're just going to cut your, cut your water off. So um, you know, it was a very uh, uh, uncomfortable agreement, I think, for all sides. I don't know what the details were for I, Kevin Kelly, California. I can help just a little bit in the setup on that. Um, and I'll try not to, to dominate the discussion, but uh, uh, the QSA uh, was... was, uh, was so the based, 2003 water deal. Yeah, yeah. So it, those water transfers to the coast that I talked about that eventually will ramp up, they'll represent about half a million acre-feet of water, which is a lot of water. Uh, that was an accommodation that was hard-fought, and uh, and it ended up... If you'd have put that to a vote in our valley at the time, um, it would have been soundly defeated. Um, now, in retrospect, it anticipated an awful lot of what we face today, and uh, and it was probably far-sighted. Um, but it's still uh, uh, very unpopular uh, because in in our valley, uh, that water goes to grow food and fiber, and, and it supports the jobs in a in a very disadvantaged community. Um, but there was a little problem with that QSA, those water transfers, and that's called the Salton Sea. And the Salton Sea uh, is California's largest lake. It's sometimes called an accidental lake. But uh, for those of us who live there, it is a, um, it's too big to ignore. And this water transfer agreement uh, did its best to ignore it. So uh, we're now <coughs> about a year away from the mitigation water that is meant 
as part of the water transfers to stabilize the shoreline, uh, that water goes away and the Salton Sea starts to recede dramatically after that. And let, let's uh, get into that. We uh, uh, want to take a listen to an interview from the documentary Killing the Colorado that uh, Brom Lesgarten put together. And this is Allison Vesey, a registered nurse at Central Union High School. She says she's already seen the consequences of the Colorado River drying up relative to the Salton Sea. Let's listen to Allison Vesey. I work in a school district with 200, I would say, with asthma. You know, that's a lot of kids. We have cabinets at each school site filled with, you know, inhalers because, I mean, it will save their life. And we have really bad dust, dirt, windstorms. I mean, where you can't even hear at our house, we'll look out and you can't even see past the fence. That's Alice Avesi talking about dust storms coming off the Salton Sea. And we have another clip. Uh, This is a film of Tom Loyola, a farmer in the Imperial Valley, discussing the future of farming there relative to the Salton Sea. If we were to dry it up, leftover pesticides, where's all that going to go when the Salton Sea dries up? It's going to come this way with the winds. And what's it going to do? It's going to ruin the people's lives and livelihood in the farming here because it'll contaminate the soil. So those are just some of the issues that I know that they're going to be able to work out. But we pray that they'll be able to work those things out. What will happen if they don't to you guys? I don't think you'll see agriculture in the Imperial Valley. I think it'll go back to desert. That's a farmer in the Imperial Valley. Uh, Ron Lusgarten, why don't you set up for us how... The Salton Sea is basically agricultural runoff that's this sort of uh, water from farms there. And, and what he's talking about, which is the potential that all this dust could <clears throat> create this big dust bowl that might return that farmland to desert. Yeah, it's a, it's a complicated story. Uh, uh, the Colorado River is, is essentially a, an, a large plumbing system. We've built canals and pipelines and move, move water hundreds of miles out of its natural course. And uh, the Imperial Valley, during exceptional periods of flow, uh, going way back in history, hundreds of years in history, would occasionally flow out of its river structure, and that, out, that overflow would fill a lake in a place that is now the Salton Sea and is the Imperial Valley. Uh, it would periodically uh, fill up, dry up, disappear. Um, when we engineered and built the Colorado River system that we have now, uh, we built a canal that moved the Colorado River water uh, 80 miles, I think, uh, over a small mountain range and into the Imperial Valley. And it was used to irrigate uh, this great farming community, um, to, uh, 3 million acres, I think, correct me, uh, Kevin. But um, all that water after, after the irrigation uh, has to go somewhere, and it drained into that same sort of low spot, geographic low spot in that valley. Uh, where the Salton Sea originally was, and it, for a while, maintained this this sort of false sea that doesn't have a natural inflow and doesn't have a natural outflow. Um, the problem is that the, the agricultural irrigation brought with it an enormous amount of pesticides uh, and other materials that uh, just became more and more concentrated as the as the it's essentially waste that flows into the Salton Sea. The water evaporates, um, increasing the the concentration of of the chemicals and and waste that's left over, and it's sort of a um, a sump for the valley, if if you will. And it is it is a sump for the ba- valley, but I I think the uh, the focus on the sea as uh, as a potential problem 
uh, as it dries up is is real. That nurse is saying it's more than potential. It's happening now. Okay, but what is happening right now is not the sea drying, although some areas of the sea have 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 dried up. It's it's there is dust in the in that region. There is dust in Mexico that comes into the region. There is dust in many, many areas. And so I think the point that, uh, the, that, uh, the, the point that we are in right now is that the problem is big, but like climate change, which is a big problem, all of us have a role to play. And I think the Imperial Irrigation District started us down that path by coming up with a 10-year plan rather than a 75-year plan that was called for a smaller sea. But we can start building uh, wetlands and, and, and habitat around that sea to dampen the potential uh, and probable destruction that will come from that. Kevin Kelly, pick up there, because if, if this, the sea is smaller, there's more dust, that creates health problems, and it, you heard that farmer could cause far, uh, trouble for the very farmers that you're irrigating. What's the solution? Yeah, so the, the, uh, I don't think that uh, any reasonable person would, would uh, disagree that the hydrology of the Colorado River as it is today will not support a salt and sea the size that it is today. Um, at IID, we've been calling for a, a smaller uh, but sustainable Salton Sea, uh, a sea perhaps two-thirds the size that it is today. Um, and it is true that uh, outside of the cultivated uh, farmlands, um, our valley is entirely surrounded by uh, desert. So the wind blows and, and you're, you're subject to the winds. But um, the, uh, as the Salton Sea uh, recedes, and it's going to recede dramatically uh, in the next five to ten years. There has got to be a, a coherent uh, strategy for how you deal with that uh, emissive lake bed. And um, you think renewable energy is part of that? I think I think renewable energy ought to be part of that uh, toolbox. And um, geothermal, in particular, not putting solar panels over the seabed or something. I, I think that uh, uh, as with water, which <laughs> You know, the last hundred years has been about moving it uh, to population centers from where it, it was. Um, the next hundred years, uh, we ought to start thinking about moving populations uh, to where the water is. Uh, and I think that uh, the Salton Sea, it's a big uh, body of water. Um, but it's not the intractable problem that we're going to have to spend $9 billion on. We just have to, to decide that uh, in a region like that, where we're trying to do many things at once uh, at a public policy level, that we ought to try and make the area better. And so that, that's, uh, that's our interest. Kevin Kelly is general manager of the Imperial Irrigation District in Southern California. Our other guests today, Climate One, are Abraham Lesgarten, reporter with ProPublica, and Fran Spivey Weber, vice chair of the California State Water Resources Control Board. I'm Greg Dalton. You can join this conversation using our Twitter handle at Climate One and listen to podcasts and iTunes at climateone.org. We're going to go to our lightning round and ask uh, our guests uh, uh, yes or no, true or false questions that, designed to push them to the edge of their comfort zone. Um, <laughs> true or false, Abram Lusgarten, growing food in the desert is crazy. <laughs> uh, true, with a lot of caveats. Can I offer them? 
Uh, Fran Spivey Weber, oh. uh, <laughs> Lake Oroville went from the poster child of the drought to the poster child of having too much water at once. True. Kevin Kelly, you are disappointed we had so much rain this year because that takes the pressure off hard decisions that are more likely to be made in dry times. I want to answer his question. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you'd answer no. I'd answer no. Um, so this question, are you disappointed we had so much rain because that takes the pressure off of hard decisions? I'm not uh, disappointed that there's been at least some respite from this, this uh, prolonged drought. Is but, it true, though, that this state is more likely to make hard decisions in dry times? Um, I, I think that, uh, uh, you know, we, we all benefit from a little urgency. Abram Lesgarten, uh, suppose you're writing a movie script about water, power, and politics in California, kind of a new Chinatown, with Kevin Spacey playing the villain. What agency or industry would that villain represent? He's a pistachio farmer. Ooh, picking on... Usually we get... Almonds get roughed up here. Pistachios, take that. Okay, almonds, pistachios are the new almonds. Uh, um, Kevin Kelly, uh, fracking for natural gas may have serious impacts on food safety and human health. Since geothermal has nothing to do with uh, uh, fracking, I would say uh, yes. Kevin Kelly, burning fossil fuels is disrupting the climate that supports our economy and lifestyles. So you never told me about this part of the... <laughs> <laughs> I think I did on the phone. I, I, I would say that's true. Uh, Abram Lesgarten, people care about their food, not who grows it or brings it to them. 100% true. Franz Bivey Weber, reform of California water rights could result in a more equitable distribution of water in the state. Too much trouble. No, false. Not a popular topic in Sacramento. Uh, Kevin Kelly, you would buy a vacation home today near the Salton Sea. <laughs> I just want to compliment Fran on the <laughs> answer to the last question. <laughs> uh, Kevin Kelly, if the Colorado River flowed south to north and Mexico sucked it dry, as America does today to Mexico, the United States would be up in arms about the water injustice. It's true. Abram Lesgarten, coastal Californians villainize farmers in parts of the state they don't visit and don't understand. True. Franz Bivey Weber, farmers should pay more for water. Yes, true. Abram Lesgarten, in general, Southern California has learned painful lessons and now manages its water more efficiently than Northern California. Partially true. It's in Northern California, that's hard to say, but I think it's true. Uh, last one, uh, France by the Weber. Kevin Kelly and his friends should develop a Trump golf course near the Salton Sea so it gets more attention from the federal government. True. <laughs> okay, that rends our lightning round. Let's give them a round for getting through that. And now, here's a Climate One Minute. With over a billion cubic kilometers of water on Earth, it seems like there should be plenty to go around. But as Anna Mikolak of the Carnegie Institution for Science told Climate One, only a fraction of that is available to us at any given time. And like the water flowing down the Colorado, it's pretty much a moving target. Right, so the amount of water overall on Earth is not changing. There's only so much water, and it cycles through different phases, through different forms, different areas, different locations. 
And only about 2.5% of the water on Earth is actually fresh water. The rest of it is saline. And of that 2.5%, about 2% is frozen. So only about half a percent overall is fresh water. And that's primarily, of course, in streams and lakes. But the vast majority of it is actually groundwater. And when you think about the amount of water that actually cycles year to year, it's even a very small fraction of that. So even though the total amount of water on Earth is, of course, huge, and it doesn't really increase or, or decrease, the amount of water that we can actually use year to year is a very small fraction of a very small fraction of that total. And any changes in where that water is, what quality that water is, and what form it takes has a huge impact on our ability to use it in a manageable way. That's Anna Mikolak of the Department of Global Ecology at the Carnegie Institution for Science, speaking at Climate One in 2015. Now let's get back to Greg Dalton and his guests at the Commonwealth Club. Uh, Abram Muscarton, the Oroville Dam uh, is, is the poster child for uh, not enough water. We remember uh, pictures of those uh, houseboats on the rock bottom, and now it's a uh, poster child for, whoa, too much water. How is that connected to the, the Colorado system at all? Um, well, uh, the Oroville Dam is the, is the headwater and most significant uh, reservoir for California's state water system, uh, which eventually flows all the way down to the Metropolitan Water District in Southern California, which uh, depends on two water supplies, the state water system and the Colorado River. And to totally oversimplify it, what they don't get from the state system, they're going to try to get from the Colorado. And Kevin Kelly, this, uh, this uh, crisis at Oroville has put dams on the, uh, on the front line. We don't think about dams until something's wrong with them. Uh, what's your takeaway from Oroville in terms of its, you know, lesson for the state water system. So there, there was a time when uh, great dams were, uh, were considered a, you know, a societal good. Hoover Dam was actually built. The, uh, the original uh, motivation was to control the flooding in the Imperial Valley that created the Salton Sea. Um, now there were other you know, uh, benefits from it, like uh, electric power and... and uh, um, and all that storage, you know, there's, uh, uh, at capacity, it's 30 million acre feet that held behind, back behind that dam. Uh, so, um, so yeah, uh, I, I've seen those images of, of the uh, emergency spillway at Oroville, and, and uh, it occurs to me uh, that dams, uh, you know, in the modern context, they're not viewed in the same way they once were, but... Uh, at times like this, uh, they're pretty important. Francis, whoever dams, a lot of people, some people in the American West want to tear down dams. That's, that's happened here and there. Mm-hmm. It's happened in Monterey County, happened up in, late, in, in Washington State. Uh, are dams as good as he just said they are? And, and, or do you think we ought to build more of them? Well, certainly uh, building storage for putting it into the ground is probably, is, is probably a good use of future building of of some smaller dams because sometimes you get big chunks of water like we are getting right now and there's no place to put it you can't get into into the ground fast enough so you have to have some place to put it i think uh the the era of big dam building like oroville are is over well there's no more big rivers to dam right Right. dammed them all that's right right. (laughs) And, and groundwater, we're just <coughs> learning how valuable groundwater can be and, 
uh, the, our biggest challenge there will be not building on top of recharge basins for groundwater. That's that's the biggest challenge. And in in Imperial, since there really aren't that many people, and that is a good area to uh, to look at in terms of groundwater. California has passed a water bond a couple a couple billion dollars a few years ago. Uh, after Oroville, what does that mean, Francis Bobby Weber, in terms of how that money will be spent? Is that money going to be spent now shoring up shaky dams? Is it going to be spent? Some people wanted it to be used for new dams. Well, there's a there's a water commission that uh, just voted recently on criteria that it would use for allocating some of that money, and uh, it could be for surface storage. But it could also be for groundwater uh, storage and uh, possibly could be used for shoring up some of the existing dams. So I, my guess is that um, it'll be used to some extent for, the, for Oroville and, and other, other, other areas. But I think groundwater will be a beneficiary as well. Okay. We're talking about uh, the Colorado River and, and drought in California. You just heard from Fran Spivey Weber, Vice Chair of the State Water Board. We also have Abram Lusgarten from ProPublica and Kevin Kelly from the Imperial Irrigation District. I'm Greg Dalton. Kevin Kelly, the federal government has a big role here. We have a new administration. What do we know about this new administration? Uh, there's a new sheriff in town. How's that going to affect water in the American West? Well, there was a concerted effort uh, in the last uh, Obama administration uh, for the most of, of 2016 to try and get to the end on on negotiating a, a drought contingency plan for the lower Colorado River, and uh, and we came up short. Uh, we also came up short in terms of negotiating a, a successor minute to uh, minute 319 between the U.S. and Mexico, but both of those uh, initiatives remain. And uh, certainly the problem uh, in the lower Colorado River and, and in the river system, the Colorado River system remains. So uh, I, my expectation, my hope is that the new administration takes up where the old one left off. Friends, by the way, the new administration has been quite quiet on Oroville. Uh, usually when there's sort of a, a crisis of that order, the pres- politicians run to get in front of the cameras and say, we're helping their people. The federal government's on its way. Uh, there's been some tension between California and the federal government. How do you think the new administration is going to affect uh, handling the drought in California and, uh, and what we've been talking about? I don't think the uh, new administration will take much interest in California, quite frankly. I do think, however, that they they will be interested in the West. And so the, as, as much as California can attach its needs, and the drought contingency plan is one of those, uh, to the West, the better off we will be as a state. We've got to be nice to our neighbors. We've got to be nice to our neighbors. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Abram Lesgarten, you've been studying this for a long time. Are you optimistic or pessimistic about the, the water outlook in the Colorado and the West generally, given what we're seeing, warmer years and Lake Mead dropping, dropping, dropping? I am more optimistic than pessimistic, and the reason gets back to efficiency. Uh, it, it, there is an enormous amount of water in this system, in the Colorado River system, looking at it separately from California for a moment. Um, there's the opportunity to save water in the ways we were talking about earlier. I do think that it's going to be imperative to revisit the laws uh, around water rights and how water use happens. Um, We'd love to talk about that, but those are very difficult kinds of issues. 
But if you can handle them, if you can get into into some of those issues, uh, there's a lot of water to go around uh, if it were used more efficiently and distributed more equitably. We just heard the vice chair of the state water board say she doesn't want to go there. Well, I, well, I, I, what I would say is that climate, the, climate, the is, climate is the overlay on water rights. You do not have to change water rights. You don't have to change water rights. But if you put restrictions based on climate uh, changes, then, in fact, water rights do change, but they change for a reason. Can I explain a little sure. bit? So, so there, uh, again, to get big, broad, and overgeneralized, but California is a little bit different from the rest of the basin. It's a little bit of a hybrid system of water rights. But across the rest of the basin, each state has a different set of laws. But uh, generally speaking, water is distributed on a first-come, first-served basis. So the people who were there to take it first in the 1800s when water laws were first written are the ones that have the rights to now. And that's why Imperial Irrigation District has so much water. Uh, those rights are maintained based on this idea of what's called beneficial use, which is a a very subjective term, meaning that you're actually using your water and you're not just speculating and hoarding it. And that creates two things. It it removes any sort of evaluative judgment of how that water is being used so long as it is being used. And it creates an incentive for the people who have rights in many places to maintain their rights by using the maximum amount of water that they can as opposed to saving it or sharing it or lending it or, or whatever. And those issues are slightly different in California or apply to parts of California, maybe less so than they do to Colorado or Arizona uh, or to uh, IID, um, but I've come to see them as as really sort of the fundamental, uh, you know, tripod legs of of a sustainability problem. And if you could revisit those rights, I mean, that's the reason why I started the conversation asking why farms have water and you know and silicon plants shouldn't. A large part of the reason is because the silicon plants came later. Uh, and everything that we're talking about, all the tension, all the disagreements, is is really about an argument over how you address those fundamental issues. Kevin Kelly, is the solution to make water a commodity and trade it like other things? Well, you know, markets, uh, uh, the invisible sort of all-curing uh, hand of the market, uh, I distrust where water is concerned. I, I, I just think that uh, the uh, law of... Uh, prior appropriation, the law of the river um, that uh, Abram was, was referring to, you know, that, that, that flows directly out of that Colorado River compact. And uh, I would argue that that compact is what has made that Colorado River watershed sustainable this long. And, uh, and I'll bet that if you went and talked to uh, all the states, now you, there's certainly two schools of thought, uh, among water users, but if you if you talk to all seven states, they tell you that that uh, that law of the river needs to be uh, upheld or uh, preserved and uh, and not changed. Francis Weber, someone's in Northern California. Most of the Colorado River goes to the south. Why should someone in Northern California care about the Colorado? We don't get their water. Well, because the economy of California is built on not just what happens in Northern California, but also what happens in Southern California. Really? And water is very important to both. Agriculture is very important to both North and South. And so the uh, addressing the Salton Sea in a, uh, in a fair way and in a broad way and, um, and focusing on not just 
Northern California issues like the Delta or the Central Coast, but also including the uh, the um, Imperial Irrigation District and and the uh, Imperial County area is uh, is is essential to the to the, I think the fairness of uh, of addressing water issues throughout the state. Kevin Kelly, you have a magic wand. What would you do to to solve the Colorado problem? Mm-hmm. Besides shrinking Las Vegas. Well, uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I, I just want to take the opportunity to, um, to commend Fran on, on uh, having spent 10 years at that water board, and, and now you're going to leave, and at a bad time for us because you were the true believer on Salton Sea. Um, and Salton Sea, in many ways, uh, we've established that it's, it's connected uh, hydrologically to the Colorado River. It's the lowest point in our uh, irrigation uh, district. The water that comes off the farms and fields ends up there. And, uh, and if there isn't a going forward plan uh, in, this, in this next year that people in the region can have confidence in, I'm talking about the Imperial and Coachella Valleys, um, uh, then IID will be completely boxed out of any solution to uh, a storage uh, arrangement at Lake Mead that everybody uh, has an interest in seeing. So, so Salton Sea uh, ends up being a kind of a you know a pressure point, and I'll bet Fran that you would agree that uh, if you're dealing with a water fix, and it's it's simply about you know conveying water from the north to the south, as as important as that is. If it's a water fix for California, it ought to include the Colorado River. I agree. Friends, by the Weber, uh, we're in a very wet year, and yet the State Water Board has not yet relaxed restrictions put in place last year during a very severe drought. Why not? When will that happen? Will we continue to see people going around in Southern California, sprinkler police looking for water running off on sidewalks into the ditch, uh, into the, the gutter because of, uh, you know, when are we going to release? When and why not now? Well, conservation should be a California way of life. It is not a drought response. Uh, we will, uh, particularly with climate change, we'll be going through many years of drought and some years of very wet, wet weather, which we're experiencing right now. And, in fact, it's classic it, from all the, the stories that we've been told about what we can expect. The from wets climate. get wetter, the dries the wets, get drier. The wets get wetter and the dries get drier. Mm. And so... The, governors, uh, the governor will be getting a report from uh, a number of agencies, including the State Water Resources Control Board. Uh, if, if, they didn't get it today, if he didn't get it today, it'll be tomorrow. It'll be quite soon. Uh, on uh, California, uh, uh, conservation is a California way of life, and the long-term uh, establishment of conservation. So there'll be no runoff, not just in wet, wet weather or in droughts, but there'll be no runoff. There'll be um, restrictions on, uh, on not watering when it's raining, but not watering so much that it runs off. Welcome to Climate One. Let's go to our audience questions. Yeah, speak right up to the microphone, please. Hi, my name is Nicole. Thank you to everyone for being here and speaking with us. I have a question for Mr. Lusgarten. Uh, we talked about very briefly um, how crazy it is to grow fruits and vegetables in the desert. I'd love to hear more of your response and your caveats that you mentioned you have. And then also, Mr. Kelly, I'd love to hear your response to that. 
Uh, well, starting with the caveats first, I mean, we, uh, we do grow our fruits and vegetables in the desert, and so you can't just get rid of that overnight. Uh, our economy depends on it. A lot of people use, enjoy that food. Uh, in Imperial Valley in particular, uh, it allows you to do things that you can't do, say, in high elevation Colorado, like grow several rounds of a crop in a year and not just the two seasons and things like that. So there are some advantages. You can control your irrigation uh, Etc. Uh, but the uh, but but the two negatives, in my view, I mean, you can't get away from the fact that you're doing something that wasn't meant to happen in that environment, and that you know is a root cause of water stress and water scarcity in in every place that I've looked. Uh, and the second gets back to this sort of would I mentioned this subjectivity is what you choose to grow with that water, and it's something we didn't talk about tonight. But you know, if you look across the Colorado River Basin, eighty to ninety percent of all the water goes to agriculture. A very large proportion of that amount, 60%, maybe 70%, hard to estimate, goes to grow uh, grass, goes to grow feed for cattle, uh, for the beef industry. Uh, one of the statistics that uh, you know, I talk about all the time, I came up with in, in, you know, through my reporting, is that if Americans alone ate uh, meat one day less a week, we're vegetarians for Monday nights only, that would translate to an amount of water saved each year equivalent to the entire flow of the Colorado River, all of it, for every, all seven states, just through one day of, of lowered meat consumption. Uh, but the fact is it's not just Americans that are eating that food. It's uh, the Imperial Irrigation District grows alfalfa, uh, and it exports a lot of that alfalfa to Japan, to China, uh, to the Middle East. Actually, Middle Eastern countries, United Arab Emirates, uh, have come and invested in the Imperial Irrigation District. They're one of the largest landowners there now. Uh, and they're growing uh, the grass, feed grass, uh, which is a very inefficient crop to grow with that water. It's important. There's industries, there's economies, there's jobs that are tied to it. My film looked at some of that. But uh, the bottom line is when you're making difficult choices about who gets a limited supply of water, I think we should be talking about whether growing grass is the right use for that water compared to some of the other choices. We're talking about the Colorado River, a drought at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's go to our next audience question. Welcome. Hi, my name is Nina. Thank you, everyone, for this very interesting conversation. I came here in part because of the title of the talk, which was Killing the Colorado, which references the river specifically. And we've been talking a lot here about the water in the river and how we use that water and how we fight over it. But I was hoping that the panelists could also comment on the health of the actual river, the ecosystem, the species in it, and what we're doing to protect those species that we care so much about. Thank you for that. We've been talking about it as a, yeah, as, as a, as a, as a water tunnel. Rob Muscarton, there's a whole side to this that we haven't touched on yet. Yeah, another hour. Uh, uh, <laughs> to be really brief about it, I mean, the Colorado River hasn't flowed um, to its delta in the Sea of Cortez uh, naturally uh, since, I forget, I think it's 16, 17 years. Last year was the first year artificially we released enough water of a dam to restore that delta flow just in what they call the pole flow. So for a couple weeks, we let that water go. That is, I think, the most, you know, the most potent symbol of, you know, what's happening, you know, up and down the river. The upper half of the river, I think, is moderately healthy. The bottom half of the river is, like I said, a plumbing system. Um, water is held where it didn't used to be held. It's, uh, it's routed in directions with, you know, with concrete canals uh, where it didn't used to go. And there's enormous stresses on what used to be the natural ecosystem. That isn't a bad thing for some 
uh, ecologies, like the Salton Sea is in phenomenal bird habitat, and other parts of the Colorado River are, the reservoir systems are. Um, but in general, uh, yeah, that part of the conversation tends to, to fall off uh, in, onto the back burner. Fair point. Thank you for pointing that out. And for $1.99, you can watch Killing the Colorado <laughs> online uh, if you'd like to learn more. Let's go to our next question. Welcome. Hi, my name is Alexandra Lichtenberg. I'm a sustainability consultant. And uh, <clears throat> speaking of roles, uh, we've talked here about uh, water rights, uh, water transfers. Uh, I'd like to know if you could elaborate a bit more on water conservation initiatives at the Irrigation District and at uh, uh, the Water Resources Control Board. Um, these initiatives and what rules are being uh, considered to face the problem of water scarcity now and in the years ahead. Kevin Kelly, what are you doing with you know, less flood irrigation, more drip? What are you doing? Well, so there's always going to be some uh, uh, flatland flooding simply because you have to flush out the, some of the, the salts that build up. Remember that uh, for every acre foot that we deliver, uh, we've got uh, a ton of salt. And that's why the Salton Sea is, it has that name. Uh, it's because all the salt from six basin states above us. But uh, uh, as to your question, we, uh, like all water users uh, that, that uh, uh, divert from the Colorado River, we have to meet a reasonable and beneficial use test. And uh, our water users, our, our growers, our customers have to meet that same test. And, um, and we do. Um, we have about uh, 450,000 acres in cultivation. It is intense and intensive uh, desert farming. And the, the single uh, uh, greatest cost to those individual uh, water users is, the, is what they pay for water, even at the uh, low uh, rate that, uh, that uh, the moderator says we, we charge delivery. Uh, as we get to the end, what can an average person do in their water consumption? I want to also talk about embedded water in, in Broad Lust Garden, water embedded in food. You touched on eating less meat. Uh, the New York Times did a fantastic report last year that showed the grapes and all the things that come out of California, how, many, how much water each average Americans consume every day and the food they eat, they're eating, consuming California water. What can an average person do and what do you do in your own life to conserve water? Uh, food and fiber, I think, are the biggest opportunities to save water. So, uh, I mean, what you do at home is important, and it's symbolic, and it focuses your thinking. But, um, but yeah, food and clothing, cotton. Uh, and uh, what do I do? I mean, we, we, I run as, as water-efficient a household as, as possible, um, you know, whether that's through low-flow fixtures or just not using, not running water. Um, my wife's a landscape architect. We have a very like water minimal landscape around our place. Uh, I uh, I don't eat a lot of meat. It's not because I was trying to save water. I just I just don't. Um, but it works out well. Um, and you know that's the extent of it. Uh, you know I, I'm conscious of it. Friends, by the Weber, uh, we have a shower. Uh, we have a bucket in our shower at home. And I got to admit that I'm thinking when this rain is coming down and coming down, I'm like, really? Is this bucket meaningful? Is individual? And then I hear people say, well, it's ag. What you coastal people do doesn't matter. It's all ag. Your bucket in the shower is meaningless. You're kidding yourself. What do you think? I think uh, 
what you do. I, I keep your bucket in your shower. I think that is absolutely a, a good way to go. I actually uh, the the governor called on urban water agencies and uh, urban. Uh, people who live in urban communities to save water. He uh, had an executive order in twenty in twenty fourteen uh, that went up for a year, and people saved almost twenty five percent of the water that they had been using in twenty thirteen. So it was very impressive. Is that going to stick now that we think? It has. Okay. It has stuck because uh, now they're they're roughly at twenty percent, not at twenty five percent. But uh, but they they certainly have have stuck with it, and it is at least from uh, droughts in the past, uh, when measures have been put in, whether it be technology uh, for efficiency or or whatever, uh, rarely, uh, well, in fact, never have uh, people gone back to their extremely wasteful ways. They've they've gone back a little bit, but never so far as they used to. The biggest change, I think, that uh, will we'll need to come is for people to understand what they are paying for when they pay for water. Are they paying for, uh, for a commodity, or are they paying for a distribution system and a cleaning system? And for for food or fiber, are they paying for some for other goods that they uh, that they want and need? And uh, and so the price is not so much the volume of water should not be based on the volume of water as it, as much as as on what it is what value you're getting from the water. And a lot of places are moving toward tiered pricing for water. Uh, Kevin Kelly, are you on board with less meat? Um, I, I think it's a, a pretty good idea for people that don't want to have as much meat. Um, but uh, as far as what we do in my own home, mm-hmm. um, uh, we try to go for uh, very brisk, uh, cold showers. <laughs> it's easy when it's 100 degrees outside. <laughs> Before we wrap up, I want to say a couple of things. First of all, uh, we work hard here in this Bay Area blue bubble to get people from the red part of the state to come to the blue part of the state. So I want to thank Kevin Kelly in particular for coming here from the red part of the state and uh, what could be perceived as not a friendly audience for an, uh, a person from an agricultural irrigation district. So let's thank Kevin for making the trip here. <laughs> Particularly in these times, believe me, we work hard to get Republicans and people from the red part of the state to come to big, scary San Francisco and have these kinds of conversations. <laughs> so we have to end it there. We've been talking about the California drought in the Colorado River with Kevin Kelly, general manager of the Imperial Irrigation District in Southern California, Abram Lusgarten, reporter for ProPublica, and lead author and uh, moderator of the Killing the Colorado documentary, and Fran Spivey Weber, vice chair of the California State Water Board. I'm Greg Dalton. I'd like to thank our audience in the room with the Commonwealth Club and online on air. Thank you for joining the conversation today at Climate One. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer. Kelly Pennington is our director of audience engagement. Jane Ann Chen is the producer. The audio engineer is William Bloom. The Commonwealth Club's CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Join us next week for a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment.